to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby and joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology, he loved the American dream with a vengeance. It's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? I'm good, thank you. I'm going to say, I know I've heard that tagline before, but I'm going to say that it's Rambo First Blood Part 2. Oh, no, it's Scarface. Ah, fuck. Yeah, again, really good tagline for that film. Yeah, pretty apt. I would have gone for comedy hit of the summer because <laughs> I find it impossible to watch Scarface without viewing it as a pretty bold comedy. Yeah, that's kind of the the excess of it is ridiculous, and mm. uh, the regard in which it is held is uh, is crazy to me because I don't think it's certainly not one of uh, Pacino's best performances. If anything, no. it's a harbinger of things to come. Mm. Um, because some of his performances in the late 90s and 2000s are kind of uh, make it look like, you know, uh, kind of like a Dreyer film in kind of austere, austere terms. Mm, mm. I was also Scarface's my favourite ever TV edit for swearing mm-hmm. because there's a bit where he's talking to the immigration officer and he says, how did you get the scar? And the line in the film is, I got the scarring pussy. And then he, no, he, no, he says, uh, "How do you think I got the scar eating pussy?" And they change it in the film, in the TV version, to "How do you think I got this scar eating pineapple?" Nice. And I'm just like, "Wow, that really <laughs> does highlight the stupidity of changing this because now it makes no sense whatsoever." My favorite is still from The Big Lebowski, where instead of saying, "This is what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass." It's, this is what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps. <laughs> the thing is, for a Coen Brothers film, that's probably a line that would be dropped in at some point. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so uh, I, I, you can tell when filmmakers have clearly had a, a hand in shaping the dialogue or the, the, the sense of dialogue, because I know that Edgar Wright does that a lot. Like he and Simon Pegg will come up with the most ridiculous... TV edits for their films. Uh, you can really tell when, if something comes out that's just completely ridiculous, that clearly the director said, okay, you're going to make us change this. I'm going to give you the most nonsensical uh, delivery possible. Mm. What a uh, cheeky bunch of maggot farmers, uh, <laughs> which is, I think, one I've heard. Um, it's been a busy like week or two. We've uh, been off the air for a couple of weeks for uh, technical reasons, but there's a little bit of not happening, hasn't there, Ed? There has been, yeah. We got a trailer for the new Star Wars film Rogue One, which came out a few weeks ago. Mm, and it is immediately brought to uh, the fore, and as like people don't know how to spell Rogue. Yes, there's a lot of Ro- uh, Rouge One mm-hmm. taglines on uh, or hashtags on Twitter. So it also brought out the uh, the MRA contingent, who are still mad that the Force Awakens was led by a kind of strong female character, and now they're even madder that the second one in a row is going to have a female character in it. In fact, it's going to have two female characters who have a conversation, Mm. uh, at least in the trailer, which is something that basically never happens in the original trilogy. No. No. Yeah, I can't actually think that it actually ever does. I think there's a great video online which has 
a compilation of every line of dialogue say it's said by a female character in the original trilogy who is not Leia. And I think in Empire Strikes Back, it is like a female comms officer who says two or three lines of dialogue and that's it. Torin yeah. Farr is her name. That is know. correct. Come on. Yeah. So don't, <laughs> I don't pretend like you didn't know it. You knew it. <laughs> uh, and then like Mon Mothma has her speech in the second one and that's pretty much it. I guess unless you go into count the in the special edition of Return of the Jedi when you have that uh, that singer. Yeah. Size Noodles. Yeah. Don't pretend Slice. you don't know the name, Ed. Of the Max Rebo band. That's right, yeah. Play who play jizz music, as everyone knows. <laughs> wow, jizz funk. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's that's uh, they are swinging the balance back uh, quite considerably, um, which is good to see. But also, mm. the trailer looks pretty good. It looks pretty retro. Yep, and it has um, that Gareth Edwards touch, which is to say that it has kind of fantastical imagery that also feels sort of grounded which I think mm-hmm. is, has kind of been his stock in trade since Monsters uh, and was kind of on display in Godzilla, which was a film that had a lot of flaws, but that certainly didn't uh, let uh, it certainly didn't let us down when it came to kind of big monster destruction spectacle. Mm. Uh, and um, good to see Ben Mendelsohn uh, sporting quite the cape. Mm. <laughs> yeah, uh, strutting around like uh, Michael Sheen in Tron Legacy when he was doing his David Bowie impression. Well, you say Michael Sheen in Twilight. Uh, oh, yeah. I hope he camps it up to that degree. Uh, if he has the kind of ins- insane Michael Sheen laugh. Mm. He's got like, ha <laughs> ha That would be, that'd be quite the thing to see Ben Mendelsohn do. Because he's not someone who has uh, an opportunity to express joy in any way in his roles. He tends to be quite a sullen figure. Or a violent psychopath. Yeah, so, I mean, he's not exactly uh, fighting against casting by being a representative of the Empire. Hmm, yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of kind of chatter about who he could be and who... This is the problem with the Star Wars thing now. It's just like anyone turns up in a trailer, it's like, oh, who are they related to? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, instantly people are saying, well, Quizzy Jones' character's got to be Ray's mum because she's Mm -hmm. a white woman who has got a British accent. And because... Uh, up until this point, everyone in Star Wars has been related to everyone else. Yeah, which is its curse, really. But uh, are you good odds on uh, Ben Mendelsohn being like Donald Gleason's granddad? <laughs> I, I would actually that wouldn't uh, annoy me too much. Certainly, if he was, it would be, add a nice kind of uh, connection to his relationship with Kylo Ren if they're both kind of living in the shadow of their bastard grandparents. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, it looks good. Uh, it looks like some solid action on display. Uh, there's a ninja in it, I think. Uh, yeah. Uh, who is uh, blind by the looks of things, uh, which is kind of cool. Played uh, by Donnie Yen. So that yeah. will hopefully be a lot of really good action. Although, as, as a lot of people pointed out on Twitter, it's like they, they seem to be going for like more diverse casting this time around, and that's great. But then they say, oh yeah, if we cast an Asian person, he's got to be a martial artist, which yeah. is something they've done twice in a row now. Hmm. Yeah, um, although they did give the Asian martial artist in The Force Awakens a Glaswegian leader. Yes. Yeah, which so. It's a nice touch. We've also got some news about everyone's favourite franchise, Avatar. Yes, uh, it was a CinemaCon this week, and for people who don't know, CinemaCon is kind of like a London street market, but for studios kind of hawking their wares to exhi- exhibitors and just kind of shouting, you know. Get your get your remakes, get your reboots. 
uh, and uh, and there was a lot of news came out of that as well. The, one of them was that James Cameron says that he has now got plans for four uh, sequels to Avatar, um, kind of fulfilling his destiny to be, in my view, kind of like the worst deadbeat dad in cinema history, mm. which is that he keeps promising us something that we don't want, and then when he can't deliver it, he promises more of it. <laughs> yeah, I can barely contain my indifference to this news, but like, it's what strikes me is they're going to try and make all four at once, is that right? Well, yeah, I think they just don't want to have to deal with Sam Worthington too much. Mm, yeah, I mean, he hasn't really worked much since then, has he? No, he's just, I think, working with him just kind of sucks all the joy and energy of excitement out of whatever room, and it'll be fatal if they try and make join up with him four more times so if they can just get all of his scenes shot in like a week mm. and then go and work with the actors who are actually interesting then i think they'll be uh they'll be, everyone will be happy mm. or joe courtney is available oh there was a really great <laughs> there was a really great article on pajiba this week which was saying who is our sam worthington who is this this year's sam worthington basically being the actor who hollywood tries to make a thing and then doesn't happen and obviously sam worthington was the original sam worthington but they said that jai courtney is probably the the front runner for being our our current sam worthington Mm. yeah i really hope that he does break through and then disappear as quickly (laughs) he's in suicide squad isn't he probably everyone and speaking of suicide squad yes we got some interesting news that confirmed uh, my long-held uh, impression that Jared Leto is an insufferable arsehole, which is apparently that he would send used condoms and anal beads to his Suicide Squad castmates. So they can have insufferable arseholes? <laughs> yep. Uh, but basically he was kind of being method and trying to really bring the Joker to life, which uh, is awful and just like that is I think not something what Stanislavski had in mind. <laughs> when he kind of developed the idea mm. of the, the method. But also it's like, I thought that when he gained all of that weight to play Mark David Chapman in Chapman 27, that was kind of the most insufferable thing he could do. But I'm glad that he has proved me wrong and that he has justified my decade-long uh, decision, to long-held decision to just treat everything he does with complete disdain. Mm. Yeah, it certainly does kind of ring a certain kind of tune of of idiocy. I mean, I wonder how true it is because, like, you know, obviously uh, anyone else would think no, but Jared Leto, possibly, probably, and then uh, regrettably. He just tries so hard. Yeah. He's got an Oscar now. He doesn't need to try. Yeah, I mean, he was barely trying before. Mm-hmm. So you, you think he could have just made that little bit of effort and then gone back to making terrible music. But no, he's just going to force us to endure his more terrible performances. Um, We've got Batman news. Yep, Ben Affleck's solo Batman movie, which he is directing and possibly writing, is uh, confirmed. It was kind of rumoured for a long time, but uh, it's it's definitely happening now. Uh, And I'm kind of excited about it in the sense that uh, everything I've heard about Batman... His Batman in Batman v Superman, which I haven't seen, uh, because you and I have basically said that we've got a suicide pact that if one of us sees it, then we both have to see it. Yeah, so stay, far, stay strong. Yes, yeah, so both we basically both agreed not to watch it. Uh, but he, 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 by all accounts, he's one of the best parts in it, and he's obviously 
demonstrated that he's a pretty solid craftsman so i think that he could uh create a pretty decent batman movie uh, more so than Zack snyder apparently has um, mm, i but, hope it's an origin story because i realize i know where batman came from yeah i'd really like to see his parents die again mm, yes please uh, yeah so i think that that sounds interesting but at the same time it just kind of suggests that he's getting sucked into this kind of superhero world rather than continuing what was going to be his trajectory of being like a new kind of, uh, you know, doing lots of kind of worthy Dennis Lehane adaptations and things like that. Mm, yeah, for shame, for shame. Uh, what other Cinecon news have we got? Uh, the trailer for Doctor Strange was revealed and there were images released of Ghost in the Shell, the live action adaptation of the classic uh, anime which demonstrated that Orientalism is still alive and well mm. because we got to see what happens when you cast white actors in roles that are clearly meant to be played by Asian actors. Mm. What's the, I know we understand Ghost in the Shell. Uh, everyone's Asian in that pretty much. Uh, but who? what's the controversy in Doctor Strange? Uh, Tilda Swinton is playing a kind of Tibetan mystic. Oh, okay. okay. And I love Tilda Swinton. She can play basically anything and I'm sure she'll be pretty good. But... Is one of those things where you think this role was clearly written to be played by someone of Asian descent mm. and just casting it because you want to work with Tilda Swinton does feel a little kind of uh, icky, to say the least. Mm. Yeah. I don't really get Doctor Strange. I don't get what his thing is. What's his thing? He kind of has magic hands. Oh, I. Uh, and he kind of has a connection to kind of... He's basically a magician. Mm-hmm. Uh, or a wizard essentially so he just has lots of magic it's uh kind of the stranger uh, surprisingly enough of the kind of the marvel properties that have been adapted so far um arguably odder than guardians of the galaxy because it actually takes place in the kind of the main marvel continuity as opposed to being you know crazy space opera that happens in another galaxy right so it's just gonna and, and scott derrickson who's the director has said he's gonna bring more of a horror vibe to it which i'm skeptical of because i think the marvel house style is a little too strong for that but um i'll be interested to see it but it's not one that i'm hugely kind of excited about so far mm. i mean the cast, is, cast, cast is pretty good yeah yeah although the image that there's the first image that was released of Benedict Cumberbatch and Chiwetel for standing next to each other on a street in full garb was hilarious just because they both looked so bored. Mm. <laughs> they both looked like they were having a kind of uh, Arrested Development style, I've made a huge mistake moment. Mm. Did you see the, the, the gif that was going around of them jumping? Yes. Because, that yeah, because was... it was like a, a, obviously a scene they were shooting where they would be uh, turned into flying people by the magic of uh, digital Tom Fulbury. But obviously watching that on the set is two actors taking a few steps and then jumping, like basically hopscotch. Mm-hmm. Um, and it looked quite daft. Yeah, so I think in general it's going to be daft, but I think if it ends up being fun daft, then that'll be all right. If it ends up like the first four, which was just kind of a ridiculously silly film, then I think it'd be fine. But if it ends mm-hmm. up like the second four, it'd be pretty disappointing. Mm, yeah. Anything else coming out of the con? There was kind of a, a, a something that came as a big surprise to me, and I think a lot of people was the announcement that the Dark Tower had started shooting. Yeah, I mean that's been like they've said they're going to do that for yonks. Yeah, so and obviously there's been movement on it recently, saying that they'd cast Idris Elba as as Roland and uh, they'd cast 
uh, Matthew McConaughey as the the man in black, and it's like, oh, that's really good casting. It'd be really good if the film actually happens, mm-hmm. uh, and then suddenly to say, oh yeah, this was the first day of shooting, it just kind of came as a very pleasant surprise that after decades essentially of people failing to get it made, that apparently there is uh, footage in the can that will maybe see the light of day soon. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I believe it when I see it, but you know. Um, it's not only uh, the Dark Tower and Stephen King news this week. I know it's something that you, you and I both love. The uh, the film The Mist mm. um, is getting a television adaptation. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure what that would be, unless you were going to just have like the first episode would be them being trapped in the uh, in the, the the shopping mall and then not the mall, but you know, like the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of it would just be because the the short story the the mist is told in retrospect and has them kind of like traveling around mm-hmm. uh, through the mist and kind of dodging all the various horrible creepy crawlies. So I could see it kind of working in a Walking Dead sense where mm-hmm. they just keep going and the mist is still there and they're trying to find safe harbor. Mm-hmm. But it also just feels like that would get even more repetitive than the Walking Dead because other than you know maybe people having the opportunity to create lots of cool creature designs. Mm-hmm. Did you did you ever see the black and white version of The Mist? I did. It was very, very cool. I mean... Yeah. It, is, it, it, is it like an improvement or is it just a different way of watching it? Uh, it's not an improvement in just because obviously the film wasn't shot to be in black and white, so it's not as striking as it would be in, in kind of a, uh, you know, like a man who wasn't there kind of sense. Because mm-hmm. there's that colour version of the man who wasn't there that exists out in the world, which looks really strange because obviously all the colours were designed pure for, for black and white cinematography. Mm-hmm. And the, because of the mist is essentially just turning grayscale on, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't look like kind of the 50s B-movie that you would hope it would look like if it had been actually kind of intended to be shot in black and white. But it still, it, does, it looks cool and it mm. does kind of give you a sense of what the film would feel like if... Frank Darabont had had his way. Mm, yeah, yeah, I love The Mist. It's got mm. like one of the darkest endings to a mainstream Hollywood film I think I've ever seen. It that it does. It's the for, for a while it was a film that I loved showing to people for the first time, just mm. so that I could kind of look at their faces when the ending started to unfurl. <laughs> yeah, because and... you could see like after this kind of fun, goofy, slightly goofy B movie thrills, seeing it just suddenly go into kind of bleak realness in the last kind of five minutes was uh, was quite a thing to see mm, mm, yeah outside of uh, CinemaCon we've had uh, something that we talked about a couple of weeks ago we talked about uh, the Louis C.K. project Horace and Pete we uh, specifically talked about how uh, bold and uh, good his financial model was of uh, kind of just charging people per episode sending it straight to the people who wanted to know well Horace and Pete has since ended uh, and appears to have left Louis C.K. in millions of dollars of debt. So, uh, well done us for financial advice. Well, I think our, our point was it was kind of, it, it was definitely bold uh, and it was the sort of thing that we could think if enough people were doing it, it would be a great idea. If enough people were paying, and obviously enough people were paying to kind of keep the lights on, but not mm-hmm. enough to actually uh, ensure that he saw a profit from kind of pouring his own money into it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's got to take some some stones to pour your own cash into it because that appears to be exactly what he did. Yeah, I mean, he's obviously done it before with like his when he self released his stand up special, mm-hmm. where he uh, 
like spent whatever it was a couple hundred thousand dollars to to make it but this was obviously kind of that on a grander scale where you have to do it every week and the costs are obviously going to mount up and you have an amazing cast so it's one of those things where you think he produced what by all accounts is kind of a great work of art that maybe you'll get nominated for an emmy for best drama if uh if enough people see it but mm. uh yeah it the, it throws out the obvious kind of terrible problems of diy tv which is if you want to make anything with even kind of a modicum of ambition and he basically made something which largely took place in one set and that set was kind of a, a sparsely uh ornamented bar mm. then uh then it's it becomes very difficult to do it without losing your shirt. Mm. And uh, I mean, it's just begging to be picked up by, and uh, I mean, even as a as a kind of library purchase, uh, be picked up by Netflix or Amazon or something like that, just to kind of take the edge off it. But and they, the thing is, CK has already come out and said he's in debt. They know he's desperate, and they can offer him twenty quid for it. Yeah, I think he. I, I would hope that he'll end up being okay. Like he'll do a he'll do a tour, and he'll kind of take a take the edge off of that a little bit so he's in a he's probably in a reasonably well yeah i don't know what his finances are but you would hope that he would be in a position to kind of not not be too desperate and mm. that he, he would be he would be able to sell it, sell it to someone like a netflix that would kind of help recoup some of the losses but mm. yeah it's just a uh, an unfortunate kind of end to a bold and uh interesting experiment mm. it, it certainly explains why he's in that animated film the secret life of pets uh, yes, that was very, very like an odd. odd odd casting choice, but I don't know. There we go. Now we know. AMC Theatres in America, a big cinema chain, decided to do something this week, and uh, they said they would consider having uh, mobile phone friendly screenings for younger people um, and people with no attention spans, uh, but primarily younger people, to try and kind of bring them back into the cinemas. Um, that you know they'd allow them to text and you know Bebo and all that kind of stuff through screenings, and this announcement that they were considering it was met with mm, quite a negative response. Yeah, it, it would basically became a very kind of uh, divisive topic on Twitter and Facebook in the sense that a lot of people were saying, "Oh, this is terrible," and a lot of other people responded by saying, "Oh, you can't fight progress." and uh, I was definitely on the terrible side of things because uh, obviously it would ruin the theatrical experience if you just basically said, yeah, we're just going to let people text and it's going to be part of our model. I mean, people text already, so you, um, so the, the solution is to actually kind of crank down, crack down on it, but uh, to just kind of give up seemed like a terrible surrender. Um, mm. But also, it just I think just on the face of it, if you think about the details of it for even a second, it's a terrible idea because... If you're trying to entice people back into the cinema, you're not going to do it by saying, oh, you know that thing you can do for free anywhere? Pay $15 and you can do it in a room full of people who would look at you with kind of anger. Mm. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, being on your phone isn't the problem. It was good that they backed down fairly quickly, but it also like, gives the sense that it's actually just some sort of publicity stunt. Because mm. they backed but... down within the day, didn't they? Yeah, so I think it was, and this is something that happens every couple of years. People will make similar sort of announcements. This was just, I think, the most high-profile one, where essentially you get your name out there, you get in the news cycle, and then you, after backing down, you can kind of 
claim a certain amount of goodwill from people saying, oh, we care about the theatrical experience, but then you don't actually have to do anything to improve it. Mm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Last bit of news, which is something that we're both interested in, is a little kind of quiet story that slipped out. But uh, Jeffrey Tambor, uh, he of uh, Larry Sanders' show and Arrested Development and uh, more recently Transparent, is uh, writing a memoir, which should be pretty goddamn juicy. Yeah, I'm personally looking forward to kind of 100 pages just talking about filming the two Hellboy films. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, They probably were his life's work. And I want to know more about uh, Ron Perlman. (laughs) Um, But seriously, though, I do think it has the potential to be like a really great book in the vein of... um, of that uh, of Bruce Campbell's autobiographies, where you take someone who has been a B movie actor or, or a character actor for a very long period of time, and so has this great body of work and has been working all of these different uh, spheres. You know, he can obviously talk about being on some classic comedy shows, but also being in and Justice for All. You know, all of this stuff uh, spanning kind of forty years or so of film and television. Mm-hmm. There's got to be a hell of a lot of good stories in there. And then, you know, hitting, you know, the most acclaim very late in your career as well, mm. which should, you know, the last 20 years, a fascinating chapter in kind of Mr. Tambor's life. Yeah, the only person I think I would like to see write a, a memoir more would be Brad Dourif, just because mm. I think he's someone as well who has kind of the, one of the most varied careers ever and probably has a lot of fun stories to tell of uh, how insane shooting Deadwood is and mm. having to shave off all of his facial hair in order to be in the Lord of the Rings films. Mm. There's, I mean, that's a funny story in itself, that Brad Dourif in the Lord of the Rings, like you say, shaved off his eyebrows, but like they talk about it in the making of, about the fact that he is a serious method actor and doesn't break accent or character the whole time. And he talked in his uh, Grima Wormtongue voice the whole time. But then when they interview him for the DVD, he is in... Deadwood costume, speaking in his Deadwood <laughs> voice. If he wrote this, cha- if he wrote a memoir, would whatever he's working on at the time dictate how the how the memoir is being written? Or would he have to kind of call up David Milch and get him to help co-write the Deadwood chapters and make it kind of impenetrable? Yeah, I think you probably have to. Probably have to. So yeah, it's been a busy couple of weeks since we've been away. But what we're we talking about is our main topic this week, Ed. We are talking about the subject of heroes in mm. film and TV, not the TV show heroes, though. Well, that's good, because I never saw that. It would mainly just devolve into me complaining about how uh, it's like a shittier version of X-Men. Yeah. But with, uh, <laughs> with uh, characters who are just slightly legally distinct enough not to be sued by Marvel. Mm. Mm. Was it really bad, Heroes? And didn't it come back recently? Yeah, it did. I saw several episodes of that at the gym. Mm-hmm. because it would be on at the time when I was working out, uh, and it looked pretty terrible. Um, the first season of Heroes was okay, but it very once it became apparent that they weren't going to kill off a lot of the major characters, even though a lot of them should have died, it became very boring very quickly, and then it wasted. I gave up on it when they said, oh, we're introducing um, Andre Royo as a character, and then they killed him off after like one episode. Mm. I was what? like, great if you're going to introduce a great actor like that and then just have him get sucked into a weird vortex then i am done with you when quite a lot of the wire cast in heroes yes marlo was in it as well uh okay 
and I think there's probably a few extras. They basically, after the wire ended, then they just started kind of all these other shows started pilfering the cast members. Mm. Uh, they got added, and then uh, those shows basically that show basically did nothing of any interest with them, and it squandered a lot of potential. Hmm. It's good that we're not going to talk about the TV show Heroes <laughs> and then spend you know the first five minutes talking about it. But it's interesting that we talked about Rogue One at the top of the show, and you kind of brought up an interesting point that like it'd be interesting to see what Gareth Edwards does with the Star Wars kind of hero structure. And, you know, in, in many ways, it's that classical uh, hero's journey, the whole Joseph Campbell business uh, that you find with Star Wars, when one of the problems, the biggest problem with uh, Godzilla was, I can't remember his name, is it Aaron Taylor Johnson? You get that right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the fact that he wasn't really anyone to relate to, and that was one of the, the kind of the biggest problems with the film. Yeah, he was probably the most boring character in cinema history. Mm, yeah, I was kind of trying to like uh, sugarcoat it, but wow, Ed's gone straight in there with the knife between the ribs. Um, yeah. He was pretty fucking dull. He was very, very bland, and he you could have removed him and just have the camera following unrelated characters, and it would have had about as much impact. Because mm. the, the, the kind of the, the big selling point of that film was... Godzilla is going to be smashing stuff up and when he smashed stuff up it was really great and then they just had this kind of block of wood kind of moving from location to location so that you could track the progress of Godzilla and mm. that was like, it didn't ruin the film for me but it did mean that it went from being a film that had kind of like A plus kind of amazing action in its final third and kind of like C minus kind of boring character at the centre of it and let's be clear, it's not, we're not blaming Mr. Johnson, because he's all right, I suppose. Um, he's all right as John Lennon. Mm-hmm. But like, it's just, there's just nothing there, was there, with the character? It it did just feel like, it was just kind of a blank space, essentially. It was just a case of saying, we need a character to link these various set pieces. And so we'll just give this guy bland dialogue that doesn't really... Uh, do anything other than advance the plot and who doesn't really have any conflict or any motivation other than to get home but even then it didn't feel as if like he didn't have any real flaws he didn't really have any personality he really was just a guy Mm. yeah and is it'll be saying that the principle and a point behind a hero is to give the audience uh, someone to relate to not necessarily but i do feel like they can in some cases like i think a, a great example of this and to bring it back to stars be someone like luke skywalker who is kind of a in some ways kind of a bland figure at least in the first film he's kind of very naive he's someone who uh, is easy to kind of relate to as a guy who is trapped essentially in a place where he doesn't want to be and wants to make something of his life so he has a lot of relatable aspects about him but he also is a vessel for kind of carrying the story forward hmm and then he kind of gets a little more complex as the the films go along, mm. but uh, to a great extent, his his kind of journey in that film is as someone who acts as kind of the the, the, the connecting rod between all of these other characters. Mm. Um, and I suppose in the sense that we're talking about heroes in Star Wars, they're generally not really actual heroes, are they? Uh, in the kind of classical Greek sense, or even the classical Hollywood sense, that you know, the kind of classical hero is someone who uh, is fundamentally good and is challenged and comes through where in the kind of 70s when around Star Wars was made the anti-hero was fairly popular and was kind of uh, 
fighting back on that. And we see that in kind of Han Solo, I guess. Yeah, and in the more recent one, you definitely see that in the character of in the character of Finn, mm. who is a fundamentally decent person um, who wants to get away from being in the First Order because he doesn't have the the kind of the stuff that's required to be a ruthless killer, mm. uh, and he lies in order to kind of get away and to kind of advance himself, and then he ends up doing the right thing, but he is there is a a reluctance to him to kind of get too deeply involved in all of this kind of stuff and the same is true of Han as well the whole thing is he's just a guy there to do a job and then he ends up having to save the day mm. yeah the thief with the uh, the heart of gold mm. is uh, the archetype I guess when I said that like heroes are kind of there principally for us to relate to that kind of is half true but the other half proves it not true is the, the kind of abundance of superheroes where uh, it's often very hard to relate to them at all. Yeah, I mean, the superheroes, and a lot of people have written about this in, in a lot of detail, but the, the, in a sense, a lot of superheroes, their role is to form the... is to fulfil the role that, like, Greek gods uh, fulfilled in Greek mythology. They're meant to represent ideals and things to aspire to, the, the most obvious, of course, being Superman, who is mm-hmm. meant to be... who's meant to basically transcend humanity, you know, his name kind of says it all and is meant to represent the absolute highest ideals of what mankind can do and that makes him kind of a great figure and someone who can make a lot of really great stories about but who also is i think for a lot of people kind of intentionally very hard to relate to because he has like all of this great power and you know kind of he is unbelievably kind of powerful figure and that makes him kind of hard to relate to on a human level except in instances like when he you know, in the first, in the Richard Donner Superman, where he says, you know, after his his dad has a heart attack, you know, uh, I can I can do so much, but I couldn't save him. Mm. Yeah, but he kind of managed to hold down a regular job as a <laughs> journalist, uh, a, a provincial paper. Yeah, well, that that was the seventies when newspapers still kind of paid people. Yeah, he'd be working on BuzzFeed now, wouldn't he? Like. <laughs> 21 things you wouldn't believe about X-ray vision. Yeah, I think that that's, that is far away the most unbelievable thing about the Zack Snyder conception that uh, someone would still be making a living wage working from newspaper in 2016. Yeah, absolutely outrageous. Here's a question. Why are superhero films so popular now? And why weren't they at any earlier point in the way that they are now? I think part of it is technological. I think it's the, just that it's capable. People are capable of making superhero films in a way that is more believable. Obviously, something like like the Richard Donner film. The whole thing was about verisimilitude and to try and make it as feel as realistic as possible. But even then, there were limits to what you could do with the technology available at the time. But now, you can, you know, do you you can do the things that people have been able to do in comic books for forever because comic books don't have a budget essentially you don't have an effects budget if you can just draw anything mm-hmm. um and so that i think a large part of it is that now people are able to realize worlds that before could only exist on the page uh, but i think also there is something to be said for like the the post 9-11 world and a desire for stories that are kind of cleaner that are good and bad and easy to understand you know and, and that add a certain degree of comfort to people i think that's also is at the heart of superhero comics if you go back to the 1930s and 40s with the popularity of of superman and batman 
um, Superman obviously became an icon during World War Two when GIs would read the comics and kind of get them mailed to them, and it gave them a sense of home and comfort. And I think superhero movies fulfill a lot of that promise now. Um, mm. they, certainly, in, if you look at things like the Marvel movies or Christopher Nolan's uh, Batman movies, and certainly something like Spider-Man, which came out in 2002 and kind of was the film that really kicked off the wave of, of superhero movies as being mega hits as opposed to like the blade films which did okay and the x-men films which also did kind of good business but not massive like spider-man came out and it was one of the biggest hits of all time and it kind of kicked off the craze to try and make as many of them as possible hmm. i think i find it kind of interesting that i mean that was exactly the point i was getting at that um you know superheroes tend to come when you know society needs them uh, you mentioned uh, Superman in the 30s and 40s. You also had the X-Men, the kind of civil rights struggle um, in the kind of 60s. But like, I find it weird that it is an obvious parallel to draw that people would require some kind of comfort after 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I didn't think would be obvious was they want to watch films in which entire cities are destroyed <laughs> by like foreign, foreign people, um, which is exactly what happens in all the time. Yeah, I mean, that, that took a long time to happen. Because I think if you look at a lot of those early superhero movies, like the the whole point of the first X Men film is, which obviously came out before nine eleven, was to prevent the destruction of New York mm-hmm. when they release that uh, wave that is going to turn people into mutants, but then will just cause their bodies to disintegrate and they just turn into water mm. in a very creepy way. Uh, but like in the immediate aftermath, stuff like the the entire the scale of like the first Spider Man film is very very small. It is Peter Parker swinging around at one point one building is on fire and that's kind of the extent of the level of destruction in the second one a train is in danger and you know that's about the extent of it and it took until uh kind of the the late 2000s the late aughts to really get into the sense that oh yeah it's fine now for us to just destroy entire cities and I'm not sure at what point the kind of the tip what the tipping point was but maybe something like cloverfield which was uh one of the f- first films to really emphasize widespread destruction of an entire city uh and that city in particular being new york mm. yeah, yeah i think maybe zach Snyder was just like do you know what they're over it let's do it it's been 10 years it's been yeah. what, 12 years i guess it would have been with uh when when man of steel came out everyone's everyone's ready to to watch people die in mass numbers again mm, mm, yeah i talked a little bit earlier about the classical hero of hollywood uh you the generally the the kind of the types of uh heroes played by people like john wayne mm. or uh gary cooper or james stewart um do you think that we have that kind of actor these days i mean i suppose the closest you get is maybe what like tom hanks or something tom hanks is definitely in that uh, is definitely in the James Stewart mold, and obviously that's not not the first person to kind of point out that connection. But if you look at him in things like last year's Bridge of Spies, where he's essentially a, a kind of a decent American everyman who's there trying to do the right thing in a complex situation, mm. um, and I think you know that you can definitely see a connection between that and uh, some of of Jimmy Stewart's roles. But even Jimmy Stewart had after World War Two, after he saw combat he had a kind of a darkness to him in stuff like Bend of the River and the Naked Spur. Mm. But even then, like even when he was playing kind of a, a dastardly villain, he was always someone who was trying to uh, do 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 right by the people he was working with. Mm. 
or he went really dark with like Vertigo or something. Oh yeah, yeah, Vertigo is kind of the uh, the Naples Ultra of his of his darkness as a performer. I do feel that someone like uh, the, to go back to superheroes, someone like Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark, certainly in the first Iron Man, I think he he is uh, kind of a classical hero in the sense that he is someone who is flawed is someone who has done bad things and is trying to is trying to to make amends for that sort of thing i think you can draw a connection between him and like humphrey bogart's kind of uh, stock in trade of his characters as someone like rick blaine in casablanca who is a very reluctant hero someone who has kind of a past uh, who has just uh, who is, has descended into a realm of moral relativism who is forced to kind of make a a choice and that's kind of the thing with tony stark because he is someone who has profited hugely by producing weapons that kill lots of people and then decides to use that ability for for some good mm, mm. as opposed to the classical hero we talk about the anti-hero what can that largely be attributed to is it a political thing like kind of post-war gate kind of vietnam uh kind of business or is it uh kind of the filmmaking that was coming out in the new hollywood era leading kind of to more complex characterizations rather than he's wearing a black hat he's wearing a white hat i think there are waves of it i think you can see anti-heroes emerging for the first time in the post-war period through noir Mm -hmm. because there's lots of basically characters who are heroes in the sense that they're the people that are being followed they're the people that the audience are following but they are also like violent sociopaths in things like the big heat you know Mm -hmm. where the hero is like repeatedly beating people very very badly Uh, and i think what what you see arising anti-heroes can often be attributed to a kind of a darkening of the national mood you know people were coming back from in world war ii people were coming back and they'd seen all this horror and you know kind of bright light uh fair now kind of felt a little hollow to them and you can see that also in filmmakers who um who went to war someone like george stevens who beho- who before the before world war ii made kind of light frothy spencer tracy and Catherine hepburn comedies and then after the war makes like a place in the sun and shane films that are very kind of have it have an edge to them and a darkness to them mm-hmm. uh, and i think that in the 70s you have watergate happens but even before watergate you have the vietnam war which is creating this incredible darkening of the political mood you have nixon who is widely hated by a large percentage of the uh, of the population uh, and particularly for people who are actually making films uh you have just this divisiveness going on and so the national mood creates a situation in which people want to see stories that are that reflect the complexity and the darkness that they see in their everyday lives. Mm. Who's your kind of uh, go-to anti-hero? Uh, I think just because it's one of my favourite films, I do love Jake Gitties in Chinatown mm-hmm. because it it plays into like a lot of noir tropes. But I do love the fact that it's a film that has a character who is kind of very morally dubious a private detective who has no problem just pretty much taking any job and who's who's seen things that have made him incredibly hard and hard-hearted but then you pair him up against john houston as probably one of the absolute most despicable human beings who's ever appeared on cinema screens mm-hmm. uh, and i think that's a good example of when you have an anti-hero it gives you 
license to get really dark with the characterization of your actual villain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think mine would be uh, Snake Plissken. That's um, a good one. Because if you want to uh, uh, embody the anti-hero in any kind of one exchange, it would be when Lee Van Cleef's trying to kind of turn him towards the war effort and just says, I don't give a fuck about your war. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only reason he's doing anything good is because his head's going to explode. Obviously, it's uh, heroes in films are kind of uh, often, like we say, superheroes or kind of people who have got kind of do outlandish acts and uh, kind of uh, or heroic things. But how do you think film treats like kind of genuine, real heroes? And like, for example, I think more people somehow will be kind of inspired by Superman, an alien who fires lasers out of his eyes and can fly wearing pants on the outside of his trousers, mm-hmm. than they will by the story of someone like. Aaron Brockovich, who is a real person who did very heroic things that really impacted people's lives in a real way. I think it it depend it very much depends on the filmmaker. I think that Aaron Brockovich is a really good example of someone who depicts a real life hero in a way that is actually fairly fair and balanced. It doesn't kind of sand them down too much. You know, it just prevents someone as kind of a messy human being and, and that's uh, more true to life it still says what they did was kind of important but uh, and, and someone another example would be russell crowe's character in the insider mm. as a man who was you know kind of a deeply flawed human being who tried to do something really that, that you know would have affected a few lives and just kind of got screwed over as a result but i think that in a lot of cases the approach to hollywood is to uh, take kind of complicated human beings and just reduce them down to a few key elements to the point where they don't really feel human anymore. Mm. Mm. It's well, I was trying to kind of wrap my brain, trying to think of kind of real heroes from things, and yeah, they're never as heroic as the the kind of the ideals, are they? No, I mean, I I was kind of I was thinking about this subject because of the uh, Ken Burns documentary about Jackie Robinson, which has just started, which is a, a genuine kind of wonderful two-part documentary about a genuine hero, someone who was a great sportsman, but who kind of fundamentally altered, in a lot of ways, kind of American society, and he is a genuinely heroic figure. Mm. But you compare how he is depicted in that documentary, which does go into a lot of the complexities of him as a human being, to 42, the film uh, about his life, which is a really good a good sports movie, but it's a film that really does reduce him to kind of a kind of boring figure, someone mm-hmm. who doesn't have a huge amount of personality to him because he's just meant to represent the ideals of what Jackie Robinson was as opposed to trying to embody who he was as a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that is much better served by a kind of non-fiction treatment um, mm. than trying to because there's just too much uh kind of icing that can be put on it i guess uh if you if you try and do it the biopic way yeah i mean because that if you're making a kind of a fictionalized version or a narrative version of someone's life the temptation always is to kind of make their life fit like a three-act structure or and that means that you're going to take a lot of liberties uh, but then, and also, if you're wanting to make a film about someone, you probably have kind of your idealized version of you in your head that you then try and make, and that you know is obviously speaks to the impact they had on you as a person. But it also means that you run the risk of just turning them into this kind of 
unrealistic ideal rather than you know doing service to them as a as a person mm-hmm. there's a reason why we're doing this heroes bit i mean uh it's because we're gonna kind of do a two-part thing aren't we what's yeah. what's next week gonna be about next week we're gonna do villains oh wow that's a yeah i didn't expect that curveball but yeah two-part one um but i'd like to end each of these segments with talking about who we think like embodies the perfect kind of cinematic hero who would it be for you ed I would probably go for someone like George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life, just because uh, for me, like what makes a really great hero is someone who is flawed, someone who sacrifices, someone who is kind of thoroughly decent and, and does the right thing, but maybe is reluctant. And that is everything that George Bailey is. He is someone who does the right thing and that he stays in the village, in the town that he wants to leave. He tries to look after his family's business when he hates it. And, you know, he, he does all of these things to sacrifice and he builds, you know, he, he kind of fundamentally changes his community for the better as a result mm. uh, and, and literally saves the, the lives of people that he loves. But uh, and I feel that there is kind of a quiet heroti- heroism to that, which uh, you don't see a lot in in, in cinema in general. And, and that's why, for me, he's kind of one of the most affecting figures. Mm, I'm going to go for Marshall Will Kane from uh, High Noon, portrayed mm. by Gary Cooper, for many of the same reasons you've just said there, but then also the extra layer on top of of the whole kind of communist business that was going on behind that film, and what that film is kind of widely seen to stand for, but then at the same time Gary Cooper is assumed to be a kind of left-leaning kind of Democrat, but he was actually the opposite. He was a Republican, and he understood uh, what the subtext was, but did it anyway. And uh, that is its own type of heroism, I guess, because that could have not ruined his career because he was Gary Cooper, who was kind of untouchable, I guess. But, but, you know, that could have made things pretty awkward. Okay, let's do recommendations this week. I am going to pick an article that appeared this week in The New Yorker by uh, a journalist called Tad Friend, which is suspiciously sounds like a made-up name, but it is real, apparently. (laughs) Um, The article is entitled The Mogul of the Middle, and it is ostensibly... Uh, about uh, the ex-Universal uh, studio head Ten Fogelson, who is at the helm of STX Entertainment now, um, which is a kind of a new, uh, I guess in the 90s we'd have called them mini-majors, I guess, um, uh, a new studio which is attempting to kind of like buck the system with the way that it does things, the way that it greenlights films, the way that it approaches production and it's in particular kind of dedication to what we used to call uh, kind of middle brow blockbusters, uh, actor led character kind of based films that don't rely on explosions or like, you know, people flying through the air shooting lasers out of their eyes. But that's what the, the article starts out as. Um, but actually kind of as it pulls wider, it's actually a fascinating snapshot of the studio system at a very fascinating point in history. Cool. I'm going to recommend a film that I watched for the very first time and which a lot of people have kind of said great things about in the past, but it's the uh, Peter Yates film from 1979, Breaking Away. Mm, that is good. Which is a film that I thought was just about cycling. Mm-hmm. And it is largely about cycling, but it's also a really great film about, it's kind of a great coming of age film, uh, even though the characters are all kind of 18, 19. You know, I think anyone who is kind of got a bit of distance from that age knows that there is a lot to learn at that point in your life uh, and it's a great story about people kind of growing up in a small town who have never really achieved anything 
deciding to kind of do something and in that case whether that is deciding to get married or deciding to get a job or just deciding to take part in kind of a great cycling race and it has an amazing cast of people like Dennis Quaid and Jackie Earl Haley and Paul Dooley as kind of what I think of as kind of the uh, baffled dad Mm -hmm. Uh, you can really see a lot of the DNA of that character showing up in any father who doesn't quite understand what their kid wants to do but eventually goes along with it anyway Uh, and it's just a great sports film it's a great film about uh, America as a place where people can reinvent themselves or can kind of follow their dream even if that dream is to put on a bad Italian accent and to ride a bike yeah Uh, and it's just kind of it's a film that is so great at making you care about all of these characters and is so good at all the little kind of grace notes of giving them personality and to make you really kind of like all of these cutters and all these townies and really hate people who go to university in Indiana uh, that, you know, during the final bicycle race, I was, you know, kind of like cheering for the four guys to win. And it was uh, a really, really great piece of work. And also made me realize that PT Yates is a very underrated director because he also directed Bullet and the friends of Eddie Coyle. So, Mm. which are also both really, really good films, but uh, breaking away is a film that I was very pleasantly surprised by. Yeah, yeah, it's good. I only saw it for the first time last year, having had it again, like yourself, recommended to me endlessly, and then only finally getting around to it uh, late on. But it is uh, a cracker. Uh, okay, everyone, uh, that's it on uh, the subject of heroes. Uh, thanks as always for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Player FM. And if you really enjoyed the show, please leave us a little review. You can find us on Twitter, uh, we're at SRS underscore podcast, and on Facebook too. And as of this week, we've got a brand new website address, haven't we, Ed? We have. We are now srspodcast.com. Wow, we have been kind of incorporated big time. We get some uh, sweet .com hits. Yeah, now that we're official. Uh, yeah, and and that we can finally use the domain that we bought months ago, in which we could not figure out how to uh, redirect to. But yeah. now someone else figured it out for us. <laughs> yeah, big thanks to Lewis Pollard who uh, stepped in uh, to save the day from two techno spazzes in the shape of me and Ed. <laughs> we'll be back next week with something entirely different. Well, it's not. It's it's villains. We've already told you that. But until then, it's a goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from me, and goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>